Chapter 14 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 14. A Ride with Mitchell. Mitchell's request, or command, accorded perfectly with Cordelia's own desire. He had not half revealed his true character, she was sure of that, and she was almost as curious to learn more of his suave, debonair, mocking personality as she was to learn why he wished to talk to her and what he might have to say at five o'clock in the morning. She changed rapidly into a suit, her thoughts racing exultantly. At last, she had the full secret of Rolling Meadows, which she had been commissioned to secure. Mr. Franklin would be surprised. She could imagine his surprise when she told him at the promptness of her work, as well as at the clever manner in which she had stilled all suspicion by pretending that her discovery was a pure accident precipitated by a pardonable loss of temper. He would praise her again, praise her warmly, for she deserved it, and certainly she was earning the money which was keeping her at the top. After this proof positive of her ability and practical usefulness in helping to handle a big and delicate affair, her ability as an endowed and very private good angel to help save people in distress. There was no doubt of her remaining in triumph and admiration through her own efforts up in her accustomed place. She wondered just how Mr. Franklin was going to handle the formidable yet indefinite force which Mitchell was. Of course he would somehow quickly rid Gladys of her incubus. That was Mr. Franklin's business. She felt regret that she necessarily would receive no public credit for her great share in this service, and yet Cordelia felt no thrill of elation on the score that it was Gladys whom her clever anonymous efforts were to extricate. Fundamentally, and aside from Gladys's character, Gladys's situation was commonplace enough, was even excusable, a marriage she had believed legal, and a child from that marriage, only the fact that Gladys was Gladys, and insisted on being Gladys had developed what should have been merely an unfortunate affair into a potential charge of social dynamite. Really, it doesn't matter much what happened to Gladys. She deserved just about everything she was likely to get. But oh, what an explosion the thing would make. That is, if anyone ever touched off the charge. In her swift meditation, her hasty moralizing, Cordelia did not perceive a certain likeness, a sistership, between herself and Gladys, that in different ways both she and Gladys were striving for the same end, to keep from falling from their high places into disrepute or oblivion, to retain their splendid places in this beautiful world which was theirs by right, the only world they knew, the only world in which living seemed possible. When a cautious knock sounded, Cordelia opened her door and stepped into the hall. Mitchell had exchanged his butler's coat in favor of a dark sack suit. No one will see us, he said. There'll be nobody stirring for hours. But if we are seen, you can mention casually that you had a headache, thought a ride might cure it, and asked me to go along as a sort of footman to guard against the busy, ubiquitous bandit who was making New York famous. Of course, he added with his mocking smile, we might have talked in your room, but a tete-a-tete -tete in your room at 5 a.m. with a man and a butler at that might possibly have led to a scandal, and God knows we're not starving for another scandal at Rolling Meadows. Five minutes later, the roadster was flitting through the pearl-gray dawn. 
They drove inland a few miles, turned into a dirt road, then swung into a track which led into an unfenced woodland of the low scrub pine, which on most of Long Island is the only excuse for forest. A hundred yards within, Cordelia stilled the motor in a little spot that had been cleared by fire. Above the scrawny, ignoble trees, the morning was stealthily pushing up its edge of salmon pink. She turned to her strange passenger. His manner was courteous enough, but he was regarding her with that ironical, whimsical, challenging smile which that night she had seen for the first time break through his butler's mask. "'Is this place quiet enough for your purpose?' she asked. "'It is perfection,' he answered. "'I wish to compliment you on your courage in coming to so secluded a spot with a man of my character.' "'Don't talk rot,' she said shortly. "'Why did you wish to see me?' because I knew you wished to see me, and it is my instinct to gratify ladies every wish. No, no, excuse me, don't be angry, he said quickly, as he noted the hot flash in Cordelia's eyes. I'm so used to chafing Gladys that I get started in that manner before I think. I'll be serious. No, not too serious, but I'll try to talk sense. I wanted to see you and see you promptly because I thought we might have some interests in common. At least your discovery made you a possible menace to my interests, so I thought we'd better talk things out. What shall I call you? she asked abruptly. Mitchell will do as well as anything else. But that is not your real name. So I informed you. Nor is Farrell my real name. We'll have to keep the real name on the list of things unknowable for a time. If you ever feel you know me well enough, you may call me Bob. Till then, in private, as we now are, you may address me as Mr. Mitchell, but in public I will be just plain Mitchell. She saw this last speech was meant neither to tease her nor to offend her. She regarded him with a direct cross-examining gaze, which he met with a courteous smile. Just who are you? she demanded. I told you who I am the other day. There was just one way of dealing with such an impudent, facetious person, that was to take the upper hand and to give him straight from the shoulder talk, to ask hard, direct questions. I don't believe a bit of that story you told me the other day, she said severely, about how you came to be a butler. You told at least two lies that I know to be lies. Her accusation did not seem greatly to fluster him. Just which two lies are you referring to? You told me then that you had known Gladys and Esther only a few months that you had not met them in France. You had known them for five years. Yes, that does sound rather as if I had fibbed. And the other one? You told me you were working as a butler because you needed light work. You had been gassed, you said, and were still weak. You weak? That night you let me in and I fell. You picked me up as if I were a feather. Yes, that does sound like another fib, he admitted. And, what's more, I knew at the time you told them that they were lies. And I, he said gently, at the time I told them, knew that you knew they were lies. What? She stared at him. Then why did you tell them? That I shall answer at some other time, perhaps. How did you know that I knew? How did you know that I was lying? He countered. She did not answer. That eavesdropping at the window of the child's playhouse was a matter about which she preferred to say nothing. 
I shall answer your question before we leave here, he said. And perhaps you may find that my answer is the answer to both your question and my question. Now as to the lies I told you, his tone had become that of apologetic inquiry, is a person really lying when he is fully conscious that his lies are not deceiving his listener? That is pure quibbling, she exclaimed. When is a lie not a lie? Always an interesting subject. But discussing it might lead into metaphorical labyrinths far from our present business. Perhaps we'd better return to your original question. Just who am I? Yes, who are you? She was still trying to keep her attitude of ascendancy. You have some of the qualities of a gentleman, and you are something more than just a butler. Why are you masquerading like this? Just who are you? His answer was not direct. He spoke whimsically, mockingly, teasingly. Suppose we consider the possibilities, since you think I'm masquerading. Just who might I be? I might be a sociologist or a novelist, masquerading to get first-hand material for a book upon the idle rich. Or I might be an ardent lover, playing a part to be near the one I love. Some more she-stoops-to-conquer kind of stuff, this time with reverse English. Or I might be Harun al-Rashid, disguised and moving shadow-like about my own particular Baghdad, to see how my subjects, my servants, live so that I may be more kindly and more wise and more just. Or I might be an international spy, seeking to discover the document and the plot, and thereby foil the enemy. Or I might be a gentleman detective, or I might be a harem scarum clubman, lately on a cruise, now fulfilling the terms of a foolish bet he lost. I might be... But why go on? You can supply all the possibilities. You've met all these situations, all these characters and stories. But just which one of these are you? Just which one I am not telling. But why not? She persisted. For my own reasons. Perhaps because I like the amusement of keeping you guessing at mystery. And perhaps because if I told you who I really am and why I am doing what I am, you wouldn't believe me. You'd say it was utterly improbable. And it would seem so amazingly improbable merely because it is really so simple and probable. You are talking riddles, she said. No, just now I'm trying to talk most simple truth. If ever you do learn all about me, that's what will surprise you. The obviousness of everything. I'm the most obvious man alive. You merely don't happen to see me, that is all. The only surprise you'll ever get is that there's nothing at all to be surprised at. So I warn you. Please, expect nothing. That makes you sound more of a mystery than ever. Who knows? And his cool eyes were now laughing at her. Perhaps that's just what I was trying to make myself sound like. His talk, while piquing her curiosity, had half angered her. It had seemed to her that all the while he had been quietly trying to make sport of her. Whoever you are, she declared, you will admit that you have behaved like a scoundrel. And you will admit that you are a scoundrel. Yes, I am a scoundrel, he agreed amiably, as though he liked the character. And when you know all about me, if you ever do, you'll know positively I am a scoundrel. Whatever mistakes you may make concerning me, don't mistake me for anything else. But you are a man of ability, even if you are a rogue. Why waste your time being a butler? 
I'm not wasting my time. I do not know of anything I could do at present that would pay me as well as Gladys is paying me. Besides, I am learning a lot which may later be of use to me. Besides, I like comedy, and I don't know of any better comedy than those self-appreciating fine people now at Rolling Meadows giving me orders and my taking them like an inanimate, errorless automaton. Besides, uh, but excuse me, my chief reason for being a butler is one of those little items I am keeping for myself for the present. You realize, of course, that you are practicing blackmail? Blackmail? Of course, he agreed pleasantly. Do you consider that honorable for a man? She asked indignantly. But my dear Miss Marlowe, he mildly protested, I've just been telling you I am not an honorable man. I'm a scoundrel, and a scoundrel just naturally blackmails. He can't help it. It's what he was made for, just as a singer was made to sing. And if he must blackmail, can you think of any individual belonging to any discovered sex who more thoroughly deserves to be blackmailed than Gladys? Cordelia found herself without an answer. As I said earlier tonight, I could not touch Gladys if she had the decency and courage to play square. But Gladys is a snob and a sneak and a coward. She thinks she is overwhelmingly important. What the world thinks of her means everything to her and I know of no worse indictment against the world than that the fool world does bow down and worship her and her kind. For proof of this, see the photograph supplements of the New York Sunday papers. I mean no personal offense, but your own portrait is often in that same gallery of the brief immortals. I'm no socialist, no anarchist, I'm not even a quasi-Malthusian, if you know what I mean, but I sometimes think that a social uprising or a good-natured selective plague that would reduce the population to the extent of eradicating these treasured, carefully bred feminine orchids, I sometimes think that such misfortune would be a grand favor to the human race. But I beg your pardon. I didn't mean to grow serious and polemic. Again, Cordelia found herself without words and found herself wondering more than ever at her companion. Was this talk more persiflage, fantastic foolery, or behind it was there a vein of seriousness? But to get back to my blackmailing of Gladys, I have yet another reason, a personal grudge. Whatever may have been Grayson's faults, he was a real man and the best and truest friend I've ever had. If I ever loved a man, I loved him. I'm talking serious talk now. When I saw Gladys that second time in Paris and learned that even before she'd heard that story of his other marriage, she'd grown ashamed of Grayson, my best friend, because he had been a mechanic. When I learned that she was really glad he was dead because her secret marriage and her shame would not ever have to come out, why, I made up my mind right then that I'd make Gladys pay if ever my time came. And I'm making her pay. Not just with the money I'm getting, I'm making her pay with the constant fear of being found out. And that's the highest price you can get out of your Gladyses. The fear that they'll be found out, and may go tumbling from their dazzling pedestals. But instantly his grim tone was light again, and he was once more smiling quizzically at her. I may have still another reason for my blackmailing, one that's just a bit more human. Francois is the son of my dearest friend. I regard him as my godson. He's the nearest thing to a relative that I now have living, 
and I think I couldn't care more for him if he were my own child. Esther and I are his best friends, but Esther has no money of her own to take care of him with, and of course she has little use for me, for I'm a bold, bad blackmailer. Who knows when Gladys won't feel that she's got to throw Francois overboard to save herself? And who knows when some clever man, she'll fall for a man who'll flatter her in the right way, may not get hold of her fortune and manage to lose it, big as it is. And who knows that I'm not taking Gladys's money while she's still got it in order to save and invest it for Francois's later use. Who knows that what I'm doing is not merely taking out insurance for the son against his mother's folly. Cordelia recalled the letter she had found in his room, which referred to remittances, which were to return a rich profit. And that's what you've been doing, investing all that money for Francois? Who knows? And even if I were to declare I was doing it all for Francois, you know you should not believe an admitted scoundrel. He was now smiling openly. But why your repugnance to blackmailing? Fundamentally, it is one of our most important and respected business institutions. Its principle is exactly the same as that of all other successful business. One secures an advantage over another person, which the second person cannot resist, and one uses that advantage. That's how the captains of industry, also the lieutenants, sergeants, corporals, and buck privates, all got theirs, if they ever got very much. In blackmail and its less agreeable forms, why, we're all mixed up in it. We're all either holding people up or being held up because of big scandals or little annoyances and inconveniences which we are able to threaten and inflict, or which we wish to escape. Why, I dare say, even you, Miss Marlowe, if you would scrutinize your life, have paid or may be paying blackmail in some form in order to avoid something which may seem to you unpleasant. No, you really must not say anything against our sacred institution of blackmail. That would be sacrilegious. Without extracting it or paying it, how could we be comfortable and respectable? She did not know exactly why, but Cordelia had a sense that his talk was becoming uncomfortably personal. Is this why you asked me here, she inquired, to air your philosophy of blackmail? I beg your pardon. I entirely forgot myself. When I get an audience, I'm a glib as quenchless, as authoritative, and quite as meaningless as an English novelist on an American lecture tour. Abruptly, his appearance changed. His satiric eyes became keen, searching. You're right. I didn't ask you here to listen to the mere wagging of a loose tongue. It seemed to me that our games had become pretty thoroughly tangled, and that we should have a frank showdown. I have told you about myself. Now, just what is your game? She started. My game? You're not acting that innocent surprise at all well, he said sharply. Yes, your game. Surely you don't think I'm such a fool as to believe the tale you told Esther and Gladys, that your learning Gladys's story was due entirely to an accident and the losing of your temper? Surprised though she was, she tried to be stiff, coldly indifferent. You may believe it or not. What you believe does not concern me. But what I told Gladys and Esther was the truth. I'm willing Gladys and Esther should think your tale the truth, provided it doesn't interfere with me. But I know it is not the truth, for I know you came to Rolling Meadows to learn Gladys's story, and that you learned it in consequence of persistent, careful planning. 
I say again, your tale was not the truth. And again I ask you, what's your game? Mitchell, she said haughtily. Mr. Mitchell, when we're in private, he corrected. She stared at him, still trying to maintain her manner of haughty denial and indignation. You might as well drop that pretense, he directed. We'll get on better. I suspected you from the first. But I've been certain of your business at Rolling Meadows since the night I was talking to Gladys and Esther out in Gladys's old playhouse, and I heard you just outside the window where you were listening. You will recall that I spoke of a draft and closed the window. I think you will now admit I know what I am talking about. She felt her dignity suddenly deserting her. I believe that's the promised answer to your question of a few minutes ago and also to my question. How did you know that I was lying? And how did I know that you knew I was lying? Are you satisfied with my answer? Her own answer was silence. And that isn't all I know. I've been watching you ever since. I knew what you were up to that day you thought you were questioning me so cleverly. And I know you got the story out of Gladys tonight through a skillfully prepared trick. I'm no fool. We'll get to our point much more quickly if you'll admit the truth. I'm right in all I said about you, am I not? Against her will, she slowly nodded. That's much better. Next. Now what's your game? I have no game. Even to her own ears, this sounded unconvincing. Oh, yes, you have. None except that when I first came here, I felt that something was wrong with Gladys. I thought if I found out what the trouble was, I might somehow help her get untangled. I had no other purpose. Of course, you suspected me. Then you must have planned in advance some way of getting rid of me. How are you going to do it? I haven't had a chance to think since I've known just what your hold on Gladys is. I see I can't call the police. Can't I appeal to your better nature to drop this, this persecution? The better nature of a scoundrel? No. Besides, Gladys won't want me to give up. She'll feel safer to have me around, where she thinks she knows what I'm doing. But to help Gladys, is that your only motive for hunting down this story? What other motive could I have? Gladys hinted pretty broadly at a possible one. It's plain enough to everyone that both you and she are interested in that very rich, very handsome, and very exalted Mr. Plimpton. With this story, you could certainly serve Mr. Plimpton with Gladys's goose very thoroughly cooked. This time, Cordelia's indignation was sincere enough. I hope you do not think me that kind of a woman. I think not. But knowing Gladys has made me able to imagine a woman capable of doing anything. He regarded her thoughtfully for a moment. If you were not already a rich person, there is still another motive that might be ascribed to you, and a mighty big motive. What is that? The one we were discussing a few minutes ago, the ancient and universal motive of blackmail. If you needed money, and were not handicapped with scruples, you could not have dug up a better asset than this story. Gladys would pay you any amount you cared to ask. He caught the angry gleam of her eyes, and interrupted her before the rush of hot words got to her lips. Oh, I don't believe that. I merely mentioned it as a possibility that existed in the situation. Of course, a person with your money would never even be tempted. 
Let's shift to something more pleasant. He was smiling at her again, respectfully enough, but with whimsical daring. I'd much rather be on friendly terms, if that is possible. For I've read the cards and the tea dregs and the stars in their courses. They tell me that you and I are to be much involved together. We are already mixed up a bit, you know. In what other way do they tell you we may be involved? It's rather early in our acquaintance for me to be too explicit, he replied with grave mischief. Their predictions pertain to, uh, romance. Cards, tea dregs, the stars in their courses, my own eyes. They all tell me that your fate is entangled with the fates of many men. Excuse me for mentioning names. There is Mr. Plimpton. A wonderful match, wonderful. The usual social prophet would promptly predict a marriage there. But the tea dregs are shy and non-committal. Then there's this lawyer, Mr. Franklin, who... Mr. Franklin, she ejaculated. Didn't you know? I saw that in him at once. He wants to marry you. He's clever and determined, and unless you wish to marry him, you'd better be careful. Take my advice, and be careful anyhow. There doubtless are many additional men who represent romantic complications, but I myself have knowledge of but one other. Since you are giving me a catalogue, what is the name of the third? His real name is not generally known, but people call him Mitchell. You? Oh, I'm not saying I'm really in love with you, yet. No more than you are in love with me, yet. But I do admire you, and you know what admiration often leads to. I do not mean to be impertinent, at least not too impertinent. But since I was listing your possibilities, or your dangers, why, as an honest statistician, I was compelled to include myself. Now, which of the three of us is it going to be, I wonder? You are altogether too impudent. We'll be going back. Her foot reached for the starter. Just one more minute. All levity was gone from his manner. He was impressively serious. You may think I have talked nothing but nonsense. In this day, the only way you can get hard facts listened to by the public is to play the humorist or the fool and present your realities as a fool's jestings. But believe me, I've been talking nothing but mighty hard facts. And perhaps the most important fact of all to you, I have still to mention. What is that? Gladys. You're getting her secret may be the worst thing that possibly could have happened to you. She'll fawn upon you, but you've won her eternal hatred. She'll be always afraid that you may tell on her, and she'll be always thinking how she can destroy you so that you cannot tell, or so that if you do tell, at least you will not be believed. And there is nothing that she will stop at. So look out for Gladys. And now you may step on that starter, if you wish. Twenty minutes later, they were back at Rolling Meadows. The household was still hushed in its heavy Sunday morning slumber. The Mitchell, who opened the front door for Cordelia and stood aside for her to enter, was Mitchell the impersonal and impassive, whose butler's face proclaimed that in all this thirty years he had never smiled. Cordelia was more bewildered, more curious than ever concerning this man. Just what was he, really? And particularly... Just how much of a scoundrel. End of chapter 14